0: Hello and welcome to a new episode of Transforming Care and Clinical Support, our podcast series from Home Group. I'm Dr Nick and today we're exploring the academic works of Professor Chrissy Rogers, Director of the Tizard Centre. Welcome, Chrissy. It's so nice to have you on the podcast. I've been really looking forward to having you as my guest. Thanks for inviting me. <laughs> so, let's start with an introduction. Tell us a bit about yourself and your research.
1: Well, basically, I'm uh, Chrissy Rogers, professor of sociology, currently the director of Tizard Centre at the University of Kent. So I would say that um, sociology kind of runs through my veins um, as someone who is very interested in people and society, and um, and also generally very nosy, really, which I think makes for quite a good sociologist. <laughs> I like to know. Um, about people and how they interact with each other. I did um, my degrees at Essex, University of Essex. And then I did, uh, so I did the three degrees, BA, MA and PhD. And then I went on to do a postdoc at um, University of Cambridge. And yeah, I mean, basically the um, PhD research was mainly motivated by my personal experiences of being a mother with a daughter who was identified with special education needs uh, quite young, but also has a um, a rare condition called macrocephaly capillary malformation, often referred to as MCM. But that wasn't found out about until much later because it is a genetic one and it's not hereditary genetics, but was found through a biopsy you know, when she was in her 20s, and she's now 35. But she was always behind at school. But she often just just about met her milestones. So in many ways, in many ways, when I was studying sociology, as an undergraduate, and as a as a postgraduate master's student, I kind of avoided the personal stuff. You know, so for example, my MA dissertation was on HIV and AIDS. And how that impacted upon families, and that was in the nineties. The so it was there was a lot of uh, a lot of kind of challenges going on around in that area, but it wasn't. It didn't touch me personally. I didn't have a family member, and I didn't know anyone who who had um, suffered with those things. And again, my kind of my dissertation from my undergraduate was around um, serial killers, which is so cliche, right? <laughs> Fascinating. <laughs> so many students like to study serial killers uh, at uh, undergraduate level. Um, I think made famous by all all of the sort of TV programmes, you know, Cracker back in the day, you know, and all of that sort of thing. <laughs> um, but So again, I can't say I know a serial killer um, or, or have had any experience of that type of thing. But it was it was the it was the bit between the Masters and the PhD where um, I went to work within learning disabilities as a support worker to earn some money and kind of work out what I wanted to do. And it was at that point because I'd been a single parent, a lone parent and um, and was studying during that time. And, you know, I found I was having challenges with the education system. So you know, so that whole kind of identification process of her special education needs was challenging. And I ended up having to be her having to be reassessed and re-reviewed and ended up saying to them, well, we're going to go to the tribunal. But so classically, when I came to do my research, realised actually quite a lot of people do that. And then the local authority will kind of rescind and go, oh, well, actually, okay, well, we will reassess um we we won't take your tribunal. And so we didn't we didn't end up going to tribunal and they did reass, reassess and she was ending up uh she did end up with a um at that time it was a statement of special education needs. And so I was going through all of that autobiographically whilst working within learning disability services. And so key working adults who were trying to live uh, independently, but within a residential kind of house, you know, house situation, not a care home. Um, I had an itch to scratch and I couldn't stop scratching. And that was the academic side of me that just had to continue to um, work out what was going on. And I think the, the academic ability to be able to do the work that I needed to do and then the personal experience that I was going through made me kind of realise that this is this is a piece of work that I need to do and it was that was kind of born out then as the PhD proposal I mean there was lots of things in between that but it was basically I wanted to do research around mothers particularly although i interviewed some fathers as well but particularly mothers who were going through that identification process within whilst their child was at school um and so the thing is is that i thought i and i was also going to interview professionals which i did end up in end up interviewing um education professionals too to understand inclusion because inclusion was then we we're, we're now in the kind of early 2000s and an inclusion was banded about as this great celebration of kind of way of um kind of meeting the needs of of children who are identified with special education needs with learning difficulties with attention deficit problems with autism autistic children and um and other types of additional learning needs like dyspraxia and and sometimes um incorporating mental health challenges too and I wondered well how does it how does inclusion work you know I mean how, how does it work when it comes to thinking about these different children and all of that differentiation in the class and how are the parents dealing with it well what happened was is that I got such rich data from the parents that I was talking to um, what I mean by rich data, it's a common term that we use in qualitative research, but it's basically they were very willing to share their their kind of like life experiences, yeah. Yeah. So I ended up with um with stories about how they felt when they when their child was identified with a with a, a difficulty, a special need or a learning disability. Um I had children that had um parents that had children with Down syndrome um general sort of global learning delays dyspraxia severe dyslexia um autism attention deficit challenges things like that i thought it was going to be about education like really like was going to be the key thing and it did end up being the thread but it really took us through the kind of um challenges of those narratives around disappointment and what i mean by that is that not necessarily being disappointed with the child that you've got, but being disappointed with something that you thought you were going to have. So that that sort of shattered expectation of the normal, which so many people assume that they're going to have in the first instance when they dream about having their baby and and, and what they're going to do and their plans. And so it's it's that I it's the shattering of that that imagined future. Rather than the one that they have, so I'm not suggesting that these mothers or parents were feeling anything other than you know what they had to do um, and and care for and with and about their their child. But it's just that that process of thinking through how am I going to deal with this or what am I going to do, and there were so many there were so many barriers to to it, and that kind of dovetailed in a way with. There was an element of what I was going through in terms of my own biography with Sherry, um, my daughter as well. So it's kind of like that um, that element of, of um, my research going forward, but also being very reflective and reflective about my own personal story. And I think sometimes that when I was talking to the mothers, they were... I think they quite enjoyed that interaction because I was not like them, because we're not. None of us are exactly like each other, but they knew that I understood a bit about what they were talking around um, in that in that way. About you know, if they would talk about oh you know the the education professional this or the statement that or the local authority, the social social services, social care at the time we were relatable basically in that way.
0: You're quite unique really in the way that you've done the research which is one of the reasons that I had to have you on the podcast because I've obviously read quite a lot of your research now because I've got the privilege of you being you know linked to some of of my research that I'm hoping to do and It's just so illuminating and I think there'll be lots of people that listen to this podcast who aren't in academia, who don't necessarily pick up an an, a sociological paper or an academic paper on a weekly basis and who are missing out on some really just interesting stuff that you talk about so beautifully. So I was so excited that we could have you on and I'm hoping that we'll do a bit of a whistle stop tour of some of the best bits of your you know, your career, some of the interesting things that you've learned. And, you know, maybe we can inspire a couple of people to go and have a look at some of the articles because the types of listeners, I'm hoping, the types of listeners that listen to us are going to be people that are working at the front line, people who are caring or supporting people to live their best lives in communities is is the type of colleagues we employ. And I'm hoping that they'll be inspired by some of what we talk about, you know, that that experience is important. Yeah, I mean, I suppose in terms of like, there's a couple of nuggets
1: of, let's say, sociology, and then spinning that into some of the kind of more nitty gritty of things, is that as a kind of sociologist, I mean, I've I've been drawn to an enormous amount of feminist work because of the kind of feminist element of a lot of work around the personal is political, uh, and and vice versa, right? So just park that for a moment, because I mean, feminist ethics runs through my work, but then also quite more kind of almost classic, you know, based on in writing in the kind of late nineteen sixties, so mid twentieth century. Charles Wright Mills, the C Wright Mills, wrote about this this he wrote this book called the sociological imagination and that and one of the premises of that or one of the things that came out for me that was kind of like so brilliant was that the idea of um history biography and social structure and how those things come together in our in our lives and i and i i suppose that the the thing is is that Many of us, we don't know where we are or where we came from. And if we do, it helps us understand where we are now, or it can do. And that, so that's the historical stuff. And the biography comes from our, you know, our experiences and other people's biographies. And the social structure is, is that kind of, for me, it's that infrastructure, that structural thing around us. And he talked about public issues and private troubles. For listeners who aren't really, um, who know nothing about sociology, It's really it's really translatable because basically, if you think about a public issue, what is it that really is important at any time? And so it might be coronavirus and and a global pandemic and how that impacts um, and how many people are hospitalized and and, and things like that. Or it might be that, you know, um, what's going on in Russia and the Ukraine and and on a global scale, and how is that? And, and how is that potentially impactful? Or it might be that there are x amount of people that are in poverty, or homeless, or disabled, or going through the criminal justice system. All of those things that we see in the in the news and on, 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 on the rolling news reporting and things, they're they're public issues that that are kind of community based, national, or global. But if you think about each and every one of those things that I've just talked about or just mentioned, there's a private trouble going through any number of those things. From someone who's in in Ukraine, for example, now wondering whether or not um, they need to flee, right, the country, or whether or not someone has lost uh, a family member to coronavirus, or whether they've got long COVID. And that micro element of of feelings about something that's going on in their life or for example in my research you know that everyday challenge to having a disabled child who may end up having um, self-harming have many tics that are impactful on their everyday physical and mental health emotional stability the practical caring element element to their work or for example someone who's going through the criminal justice system who's in prison right now who has got autism or is autistic um, and got perhaps adh problems or other mental health challenges those things that we experience or one experiences so the so the kind of whole big public issue thing and private troubles come together and so that as a sociologist we can understand this and and try to explore those things now I'm a qualitative sociologist, so I'm going to always be diving into the micro stuff, those private troubles, you know, and understanding those. Whereas a quantitative sociologist might look at the bigger picture and look at the numbers. I'm less likely to do that. I think we need both types of sociologists, right? So there's there's that. And then in, in terms of my own kind of like personal research, really, is is the umbrella is always going to be disability, yeah? So whether that's a disabling condition that is impactful that someone has been born with, or whether it's something that they've developed in their life, or it's a mental health challenge that has impacted, rendering them perhaps disabled, or, you know, those are the sorts of things that are are the umbrella to my research... And then the kind of strands that come down through that, because I can't do everything, right? <laughs> as much as you'd like to, <laughs> um, is is I suppose the key things that are I'm interested in researching in is is the families. That's probably been quite a thread throughout much of my research over the last twenty years. Um, education, again, quite a thread throughout, um, right from thinking about identification and assessment through to thinking about more challenges around those that are excluded and go to uh, end up in pupil referral units or secure hospitals or ending up in the criminal justice system. So families and education and that pathway, that education pathway, and then also um, relationships and how they are, you know, whether they're familial relationships or whether they're loving and intimate relationships and and disability. And in many ways, I was always going to be trying to understand people from, as an underdog, you know, from from the underdog, from those that are oppressed, you know, the marginalised in society. Um, and that kind of started me thinking about my position in terms of care ethics model.
0: Will you explain that? I think it's super interesting and important, yeah. the care ethics model bit, because I think a lot of people that will be listening are going to be working at the front line and inherently it will mean something to them. I think to do a good job working with people day in and day out, you know, having a really solid foundation of care is important And your model. I love it. Yeah, well, thank you. Well, I would say that, but I, I, I genuinely do. <laughs> and I know actually, I've reflected a lot on what we do at Home Group. And we've kind of woven in parts of your work without really knowing it. And now I'm hoping that we can formally unpick some of that and yeah, map it against what, what you've you talk about with the care ethics model that would be really
1: great actually and I mean I think the thing is is I suppose my starting point really was the feminist ethics of care which is basically about inter inter interrelationality interdependency so rather than someone being dependent or or independent you know as humans, we're interdependent, yeah? And so it's that idea of being interdependent. And, and one of the things that that, that that kind of comes to thinking about is we're in a relationship with each other. And I suppose if I was to go back, then I was looking at both the feminist ethics of care as well as the social model of disability. And the social model of disability is all about taking away the disabled person as being in need and being pathological. So you know, so in medical model terms, the person who is disabled or the person who has an illness is the one that is in need of mending, basically. So, um, and yeah, we need
0: to fix them and yeah. look
1: after them. Yeah. Yes. And and so and so it but whereas actually the social model helped us to understand that it was society that was disabling many people and by changing things in society we can then change the way that disabled people are part of society obviously and 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 included within that and and so but there are all these things going around in my head and I was thinking oh this is and of course the thing is is that often that that stuff there takes us often to Human rights or or rights of people. And that's where I felt I needed to do something else because I didn't feel that the social model quite met the needs that I had when I was looking at, particularly, intellectual impairment and learning disability and autistic people who are also got learning disabilities. Because sometimes, whatever you take away in terms of their barriers, they're still going to have that those some of those challenges that parents or carers will often face on a daily basis and i think the thing is the care ethics model brings together both the social justice rather than rights and what i mean by that is the rights-based model is often about autonomy and the rights of a person and i suppose my my kind of struggle was, well, if you're a disabled person and you get your needs met, what about the needs of the person who is caring? Whether that be a professional carer who is low-paid and undervalued, or whether it's a parent who has given up their career to, to, to do some caring. Um, and so I always felt that there was some conflict within that kind of autonomy and rights. And so looking at the feminist care ethics, it was much more fluid. There was a m- much more an interrelationship in- between human beings. And I suppose I thought about that type of attempt at thinking around social justice. And so the care ethics model, the premise of it is... is is. A combination in a way of thinking about feminist care ethics, the social model of disability, and then C. Wright Mills's work around history, biography, and social structure. So I came up with um, three caring spheres. So I came up with the emotional caring sphere, and that's where I talk about the emotional caring sphere is the place where this love and care is kind of um, psychosocially questioned. It's like, well, that's the real personal and intimate place
0: where we have this caring. Within, yeah? within that as well, is it fair to say, because when, when I've been re- I've been reading your book, It the bit that I liked is that you don't expect that, you know, if it is a professional that's giving care, you don't try and you don't expect that they disengage from a relationship and... You know, there's there's emotions that are involved. I think that sometimes with the medical model that crosses over into some of the services we provide, I think that's really hard. You know, we we almost try and uh, tell people to not to care without caring. It's the best way I can put it. Look after that person, do these things for them and with them, but try not to get emotionally attached. And I love the way that you acknowledge that emotional investment isn't always a bad thing. Yeah. Yeah. It's a good thing. And and we and
1: that kind of does cut across both the research as well as the care ethics model because you've got that emotional caring sphere and then the next one is the practical caring sphere. So you've got that that day-to-day that day-to-day practice of care that's carried out relationally. So you are caring for with and about. So it's not just that I'm delivering a care package. No. Yeah, it's actually I'm in a relationship and and in caring one and and it's practical. And sometimes it's hard and there are disagreements and about different types of care and how how people would like their care or not, you know, Uh, but it is relational. So you've got that emotional caring sphere and then you've got that practical caring sphere. But then for me, there was another layer. Which brings in the political, so that socio-political caring sphere, and this is where things like social intolerance and aversion to difficult differences are played out. So it's where this kind of this landscape of of the normal of um, oh well, okay, let's talk about inclusion, yeah. but it's rhetoric. You know, um, and what I mean by that is that it doesn't always, it's not meaningful. It doesn't make any sense. And so how can we end up kind of like thinking about these three spheres? Because what I'm saying is they all interact with each other in really complex and challenging ways, in the same way as history, biography and social structure does. I mean, it, it's its kind of like we that these spheres are kind of bound up and grounded in the sort of social and political climate of any time. Yeah. You know, so how we are play how they play how they play out may change over time as well, you know, um, in terms of, of thinking about social justice, of thinking about ethics and, and inclusion. And so if we were if we were to go back to the classroom and think about, let's say, Billy for want, you know, or Molly, or whoever,
0: made up, made up person, yeah, yeah,
1: yeah, a made up, a made up child in the classroom. If we were to think about the the care ethics model and and how and how that plays out for that for that child who has, um, let's say, is autistic or or has a learning disability, what does it mean to be included, and how how does that play out for that child, and we could say well, okay, we're going to include this child uh, into the classroom and differentiate the workload. Or we're going to take this child out of a particular space to teach them how to do something else because they can't keep up with what's going on in, in the class. Or we're going to actually take them into a completely different space and into a different building and different, you know... and. And all of these things are kind of bound up with talking about inclusion, but what does it actually mean for that child? What does it mean emotionally? What does it mean practically, and what does it mean politically? and the teacher, the support workers in the class and for that child, and also for the parents or the carers who are within that child's life and so for example in my in my research, I've had you know lots of discussions with mothers. Uh, Particularly mothers about um, you know things like um, not being invited to parties when you know their child's autistic, not being invited to parties, they get excluded and marginalised in the playgrounds because, and what those those kind of like internal political things that happen in the in the the playground, for example, whereby the obsession with intellectual capacity is such that the competition between children and also then ending up with parents for their child to be you know top of the class blah 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 it it kind of like rolls out to how children are then you know um treated within within and 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 how they how they interact and and all of those kinds of things and the whole element of league tabling of sats and all of that, that kind of feeds into that, that competitive hierarchy. So in my in my first book, um, Parenting and Inclusive Education, that talks about the hierarchies of impairment. And what I mean by that is that often people with learning disabilities are at the bottom of a disabled hierarchy because they're seen as this kind of like waste of society who who often cannot contribute economically to society because they're not actually included and and, and it's a struggle for, for anyone to see them as being able to be included within the workforce for example and and because many are so completely prioritized financial worthiness that, that it then impacts upon people's identities as they as they get older as they grow as they grow up the other thing that comes out of the care ethics model is this idea, and I've started to develop it further, is this idea around... Because I I needed to grapple with what makes it real. And I think if I take the care ethics model and then look at careless and careful spaces, we can understand a little bit more about what's going on. Because people talk about being careful all the time or careless. And they're and it's quite they're th- they in many ways they're quite throwaway comments, but actually if you live in a careless space, whether that's in an institution, whether it's in the a, a school, or a family, or a secure hospital, or a prison, if you live in that careless space, then it's a real. It's a it's really damaging, damaging, emotionally, sometimes physically. Um. And, and and politically, because you end up, they're, they're basically socio-politically dead. I mean, I talk about this in, in one of my articles about this um, socio-political death of people because they're not heard, they're not listened to, nothing goes forward for them. And I'm trying to address some of those things in, in the work. And in many ways, when I started doing the PhD research, and then the book that was in 2016 being human and intellectual disability a care ethics model that was that was kind of trying to do the theoretical framing of what i did before and then what i was going to do now do you know what i mean it kind of was trying to bridge some of those things
0: absolutely so i feel like we've we've covered so many interesting things and i really really hope that people who choose to listen to our <laughs> Our interest in ramblings takes so much from it um, and go out and read some of your work and in the next episode I really want to discuss this more and hopefully explore a real-life flavour of this research, including the issues around care and criminal justice. For now though, I want to say a massive thank you to you Chrissy, for being so generous with your time and sharing some really unique insights.
1: Thanks so much Nick, I was really happy to speak about my research.